People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Erica M. Richards, MD, PhD, is the chair and medical director of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Health at Sibley Memorial Hospital. She's also an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Dr. Richards is board certified in psychiatry by the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology. And she's coming on HealthGig today to talk about treatment and access to care for minority populations, as well as women's mental health. Welcome, Dr. Richards. Thank you. Trisha and I have really been looking forward to this really important discussion. And all of us are touched by mental health issues, ourselves, the people we love, you know, our neighbors and friends. So I know you have a special focus on women's mental health. How and why are these issues different from men? Thanks again for having me. I'm always excited to spread the word and open discussions about mental health. In terms of women, what we know about women is that they're around two, two to three times more likely to experience kind of a major depressive episode or a mood disorder compared to men. Why does that happen? And there's a lot of different reasons. What's interesting is when we look at the pre-puberty period. So when we take adolescence prior to puberty, we know that there are equal rates of depression in boys and girls. And so what that means is that something happens at the time of puberty, you know, extending into our 20s, 30s, and even 40s for women that changes. So there's a lot of research that's happening about the influence of hormones. What's different and how can we use this information and target it perhaps to inform treatments, for example. So women being more likely to encounter depression, partially hormonally related, partially environment. We'll talk about women being a lot of times, not always, you know, we're not going to go into gender specific roles necessarily, but a lot of times caring for younger populations, loved ones that are younger, caring for older populations, a lot of times trying sometimes to work outside of the home, otherwise navigating things inside of the home. So there's both kind of the genetic slash biological reason, but also that environmental, what we call those psychosocial stressors that contribute to that as well. Yeah, that makes so much sense. It sure does. So I'm going to take a step backwards because we always ask our guests a little bit about them. And I should have asked you as our first question, but on today's podcast, it'll be our second question. Tell us a little bit about you and how you got started in your career. I'm Erica Richards. I am the chair of psychiatry at Sibley Memorial Hospital in Washington, D.C. So we are a Johns Hopkins Community Hospital. I've been here for about five years now in the chair position, and I'll move backwards too. Uh, (laughs) Prior to coming to Sibley, I worked at the National Institute of Mental Health. The NIH has a clinical center in Bethesda, Maryland, and I initially started there as what's called a clinical fellow. So I went to get additional training in how to do research, how to do clinical research, which means research that involves, for the most part, human subjects 
clinical trials and that research covered depression and it covered treatments for depression and that sort of thing. After that fellowship, I actually stayed on as an attending physician on their consultation service. So providing psychiatric care to patients that were at the clinical center for other studies. For example, people that were in clinical trials related to cancer, but may have needed additional psychiatric support for anxiety, for depression, for those sorts of things. I provided that service to them. Prior to NIH still moving backwards, I was at the Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, where I completed my residency. And what's unique about Hopkins is that they actually provide additional training in women's mood disorders. So I spent a lot of my time learning about women's mood disorders, meaning everywhere from what we call premenstrual dysphoric disorder or premenstrual mood symptoms, all the way through pregnancy menopause and beyond. So that's the time that I spent kind of in my residency training at Hopkins. Moving back a little bit further, I went to medical school at the University of Maryland in Baltimore. And while I was in medical school, I actually, um, even predating that, I was very much interested in research. So I knew I wanted to take care of patients, but I really knew that I liked research and kind of finding new answers to questions. And I was able to join actually the combined MD-PhD program. So I also have a PhD in neuroscience. That's kind of where my interest in psychiatry began, which is studying really the mind-brain interface, which is fascinating if we think about this. Yeah. Okay. Go back further. <laughs> what made you, <laughs> how, who, where, who'd you grow up? Where'd you grow up? Where'd you, yeah. your parents? <laughs> yes, yes. So, so I grew up actually in, um, in Maryland and I went to a mathematics, science and engineering high school that really promoted wow. getting involved in science early on. And as part of that magnet program, we were able to see a lot of technology. We were able to start, you know, computer programming early. And so there's just a lot of confidence that came from being a part of that program and saying, oh, there's so many questions that are out here to be answered. And so I knew science was really where I was headed. I attended Spelman College in Atlanta, Georgia, historically black women's college. And I majored in uh, biology there. Oh, wow. And, you know, I really think it's important to highlight mentorship, you know, people yes. that believe in you and people that will show you kind of the path, not that you have to follow anyone's path, but you have to know the opportunities that are out there. So I was fortunate to, you know, even as early as middle school and high school have a lot of mentors that showed me kind of this is the way, you know, to college and in college. I was part of a program sponsored by NIH that was aimed at increasing diversity of thought in science. And so I spent my summers at NIH. I spent my semesters in a lab on campus and really learned about the scientific method moving forward. That's kind of was my springboard into pursuing my MD and my PhD programs. Were your parents in medicine? They're not in medicine. 
My father is a lawyer. My mom did a lot of work in kind of the accounting realm and project management, but they were not science. My sister, who's older than me, actually first entered the science realm in chemistry. And so I had her to also kind of guide me through the options. That's wow, like a real pioneer for sure. I mean, what you did and how you got there, it was not a path. Women and particularly women of color found back when you started on this. Incredible. Not at all. Yeah. So I'm very much in debt to those that told me that I could do it, that supported me through that process. And I still rely on that, you know, rely on a lot of people to this day to say, well, I'm thinking about this, or this is kind of where I want my career to go. But also at this juncture, I find it very important to mentor others. And so I I spend a lot of my time letting people shadow me or just talking about my career path with people that may have similar interests. So going back to, I'm so glad we did a little rewind there. Fascinating. You're amazing. (laughs) You are amazing. But back to women's mental health, and you mentioned anxiety and depression. What is the difference between the two? And can you talk a little bit about that? The way that I picture anxiety and depression is almost on a spectrum. So a lot of times depression can seem like anxiety. Anxiety can manifest as mood disorders or depression. And what's the difference between the two? They're both thought to be related to an imbalance of serotonin in the brain. So a lot of times we talk about, you know, we use the word antidepressants. You know, people will use Zoloft or sertraline, Prozac, fluoxetine. A lot of times with the word or the thought they're antidepressants but we actually use these medications as anti-anxiety medications as well, again, because we think of them as this continuum. And so, yes, people can have anxiety and not have depression. People can have depression and not have anxiety, but there really is an overlap of symptoms. What we find is that when we talk about depression, we're talking about kind of specific symptoms. Maybe we're talking about, of course, mood symptoms, sadness, tearfulness, that sort of thing. But there's a restlessness that we can also see that really does overlie both depression and anxiety. There's changes in appetite. You know, if anyone's had, you know, important talk to give or a test coming up or just family visiting, sometimes what happens? Well, you lose your appetite. Right, right. You lose your appetite or you can't sleep. And so a lot of these symptoms, the point is overlap. You're like, well, as soon as I get this test over or as soon as I, you know, if, if everything goes okay with the family visit, I'll be fine. So it's not depression, right? It's limited to the anxiety you're feeling in certain situations, but that doesn't mean that there aren't ways to prevent that. So when we even talk about this interface of treatment, we really do want people to understand So people have heard, if we move for a second into the treatment realm, people have heard of a class of medications called the SSRIs, the Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitors. Those are the antidepressants, so to speak, that we talk about. A lot of times when people talk about anxiety, they might talk about a class of medications called benzodiazepines. Those are the Xanaxes and the Valiums and the Clonazepams and that sort of thing. The question is, well, which medication is right for me? And the way that I describe it is, you know, we talk about, you know, benzodiazepines very cautiously because they help a lot with treating anxiety as it presents. So you get anxious, you can take something that will help treat that anxiety. A lot of times I mention it with specific phobias, for example, fear of flying. What can we do if we're getting on a plane and we're really, really nervous? There are instances where that category of medication will be helpful 
But there's also caution with the benzodiazepine class of medications because of the potential for dependence. So we know that they work very well, but a lot of times our brain says, well, this works so well, let me get more of it. You know, yeah. let me, let me, you know, and you said what they were again, the Xanaxes, Xanax. the, Valium, okay. oh, yeah. the Ativans are the brand names for those medications, generics, lorazepam, alprazolam, those sorts of things. What we do, what we try to do is to really get the source of the anxiety. Is it the flying? Is it getting on an elevator? And when it's this underlying constant anxiety, we don't really want to use that class of medications. We want to use either therapy. So I'm talking about medications. Yes, I don't think medications are always the answer. I don't think they're the only answer a lot of times. But in talking about medications at this juncture, once we decide that we do need or want to take that medication route, we want to go back to that SSRI class of medications. And what that does is that hopefully, if we get the doses right and the medication right, that prevents the breakthrough anxiety for coming through. So, you know, we can treat it when it comes through. Yes, if that's not happening very often. But in general, we want to really prevent that breakthrough anxiety from happening. And that's the medication piece. But the therapy piece and really talking about why this is happening is also extremely important. When you talk about SSRIs, are there some people that are resistant to SSRIs? There are. So we talk about SSRIs because that's typically where we start, right? There's, so there's studies that have started to say, well, if you're able to follow any kind of algorithm, a lot of times after the therapy piece, the SSRIs are where we'll start. But that's not necessarily the only option. So there are SNRIs that target, you know, different biology in the brain. But there's also other medications and there's combinations of medications that when you even put two medications together might be more helpful than one alone. So a lot of times people will say, well, I've tried that medicine. And I push back a little bit to say, okay, but what happened when you tried it? And what was the dose? Because it's very much dose dependent and duration dependent. When we talk about treatment, a lot of times what I'll say to people is, listen, it's going to take us a couple of months to even know if this medication is helping or not. We're not going to get instant results because it has to really build up and take effect in your body. When we talk about kind of the medication component, we do try different medications from that same class of medication, SSRI. We might switch to something different. We might add in a different type of therapy, but there is something called treatment-resistant depression. When we talk about that, it becomes offensive sometimes, treatment resistant. Like it's not, what do you mean I'm resistant? But it just gives us an idea about other things we find. Isn't there a test, like a blood test that can tell if you are resistant or what drugs will work for you and that kind of thing? There is. And that's a great question. We are still learning really what to do with that. So a lot of times people will bring that to me and we'll go through it. But like many other things, the best indicator of whether or not something's going to work for someone is to try it. I think that there is a role evolving for the genetic testing to let us know which medications may work. And we know that that happens. If I have someone who has a parent that has depression and is on a specific antidepressant that works. That's where I start because I do Uh believe there are genetic components to this. But in terms of that genetic testing coming back, it's not the end all and be all in terms of we're ruling out these medications that show based on this test that it won't work because it also doesn't tell us again in combination whether it's something that might be helpful for patients. Do these medications have any long-term effects? 
So sometimes they do, and it depends on which class of medications we're talking about. If I pause on the depression and mood disorder discussion for a second and pull us over to a different mental health diagnosis, such as schizophrenia, for example, then we use antipsychotic medications a lot of times to treat not only schizophrenia, sometimes for bipolar disorder, depending on how a patient presents. But that class of medication sometimes in terms of long-term effects can change our metabolism. It can make us more likely to have diabetes or heart disease, which again, doesn't mean we shouldn't use the medication. But what it means is that this medication is meant to be used in conjunction with a provider who is monitoring labs and keeping an eye on those things. The same, I would say, for something like lithium, which is really one of the main treatments for bipolar disorder. We want to monitor kidney function. Now, the long-term effects of not treating a mental disorder certainly outweigh any of these downstream long-term effects that might happen because we know that not treating a mental health issue really results in a lot of the same things, substance abuse, decreased visits to the doctor so that, again, you're not looking for heart disease, you're not looking at high blood pressure. So we really advocate for treatment and monitoring for potential side effects or long-term effects. You know, I think what you're saying is so important that these are tools to help you live better lives, but also doing therapy in some other way to support it. It almost got to kind of go together, right? It has to go together. It has to go together. What we know is that therapy works. There's a host of different types of therapy. So a lot of times people will talk about cognitive behavioral therapy where we really want to try to change cognitions, change behaviors associated with someone, avoidant behaviors, for example. The therapy alone is worth a try. But what we see a lot of times is that if people are so ill that they actually are not able to process that therapy, they may say, yeah, I'm just going to do therapy. But meanwhile, they're so anxious that they're not even able to receive and process and think about the tools that the therapist is working with them on. So a lot of times we say therapy is going to be one of the answers for you, but first we need to talk about medication. Sometimes people will say, I don't do well in groups. I don't really do well talking to people. And so we'll say, okay, well, at least we'll try the medications and then maybe you'll change your mind. Or sometimes maybe that doctor that's prescribing the medications can do some of the therapy with the person as they get more comfortable with them. But what we know is that in most instances, it's the therapy plus the medications combined that not only get people better, but keep them well moving forward. What can you tell us about treatment or access to care for minority populations? So another interesting concept, and I've done some research in this field as well, and what we see is that people from underrepresented minority populations, so patients of color, of course, will experience equal, if not higher, rates of mood disorders, for example, But all things being equal, they're less likely to seek care. And there's been a lot of questions about why. Why won't minority populations talk about mental health? Why won't they pursue treatment and that sort of thing? And there's one school of thought that says, well, this is obviously related to stigma. People don't want to talk about it because they think it shows weakness. It's just not talked about in houses and that sort of thing. To a certain extent, that is true, or I should say that was true. But what a lot of studies or more recent studies are showing is that people are ready to talk about it, but they want to talk about it in an environment that they consider to be culturally appropriate. There's this discussion around culturally competent care and being able to provide that. What does that mean? The three of us have 
lived experiences that are not the same. Now, some of them are related to our gender, and maybe some of those experiences will be, you know, similar, but not the same. The same as with different races, what we've experienced throughout our life is different. There's this push, and I'll talk about Black women for a minute, to say, I'd like to talk to somebody that I at least on the surface perceive is going to understand what I'm talking about knowing and understanding that we don't all have the same experiences, but that's kind of where they start. And if they can't find that, then there's more hesitation to entering care to why do I have to explain myself? Why do I have to explain my life? I really want to talk to someone that's more likely to understand it. And so I think on both sides, there's a need for understanding. I think from the provider side, 2019, I published a study with some colleagues from Hopkins that talked about minority providers for mental health. And what we found is that across the board, from medical school through faculty at academic institutions, what we found is that underrepresented minorities are also underrepresented in the mental health world. So even when you look at rates, right, population, percentage of representation in the population, we're lower than that, not only for medical school, but for residency. And for Black women, especially psychiatrists, that really plunges when you look at faculty, when you look at people that are staying on and doing research, but not only research. You know, we talked earlier about mentorship. When you look at people who are able to provide mentorship, So maybe a lot of the people or a lot of the residents that I teach at Hopkins, for example, they may not look exactly like me. They may be from different gender identities, for example, but at least me sharing the experiences might help them go in and provide culturally competent care. There's an increase in the need for people of color to even pursue training in this field. And that goes, you know, without saying that it also includes substance abuse training. It includes social workers that are able to provide therapy. So I'm hopeful and I'm optimistic that things will continue to improve and that we will see not only more people train in this area, But we'll see those branches go out and we'll see maybe even more of an acceptance from the patient population to say, okay, I know this person doesn't look just like me, but I believe we can get to a common point where they can still help me. So I think both are true. We need more representation, but we also need kind of more understanding that people's experiences just aren't going to be the same regardless of what they look like. Is it true that this field is changing rapidly? And we were having a conversation with somebody recently and he was saying that he loves being in this field because it's almost the wild, wild west. Does that make any sense to you? Is that true? Do you see it that way? It makes complete sense. Okay. So it makes complete sense because, you know, I think for anyone, especially for anyone in research, what we talk about is novel findings. What can we figure out that's new? Well, this is almost, to the wild, wild west standpoint, this is almost the uncharted territory. When people get cancer biopsies, they, you know, can go in, we can biopsy a tumor, for example, we can look, I'm simplifying things, obviously, but we can look at that under a microscope or do genetic testing on that and say, I know exactly how to treat this. I know what we're going to target. I can see where it is. We're going to remove it. We're going to target it with radiation or chemotherapy. And I don't mean to oversimplify because I know that cancer is still really a devastating disease for many people. But there is hope in some instances in that field that we have not yet been able to give to our patients. 
So I always tell them we had to have a conversation. I don't have anything, you know, if I take it out of the, even the cancer realm, if I put it in high blood pressure, people can come into the office. I can put a blood pressure cuff on their arm. I can inflate it. I can give them a number. Above this number, we're worried that you have high blood pressure. We're worried that you might need treatment because it can lead to stroke. It can lead to all these devastating things downstream. When people come into the office with a mental health issue, I can get a good history. I can call their family or their friends to get additional support. But the best I can do is say, here's what I'm seeing. And that is nothing tangible that I can show them a lot of times. There's so much more that we have to learn and find out about this field, not only from diagnosis, but for treatment. The supporting information is that there's, it's wide open. It's wide open. And I think advances will come. I do. The pandemic really has shown a light on mental health issues. What have you seen with mental health during the pandemic? So I've seen almost, in some cases, almost a U-shaped curve. What does that mean? Well, you know, when the pandemic first started, maybe an upside down U, right? An inverted U. Yes, I should say an inverted U. And this is talking about people that have come in and were entering treatment or coming to treatment. Right. When the pandemic first started, we didn't see a lot. Everything quieted down. You know, I went outside and it was almost like a ghost like town silent. outside. Yeah. Silent. For a very short period of time, we saw the same inside the hospital. And I think what was interesting about that is that people that had family members or friends that were able to, they actually were able to wrap their arms around the vulnerable populations that we typically see. They would bring loved ones back home and maybe try to manage things with them there because everyone initially was afraid to go into the hospital. You know, that's dangerous. There's COVID in there. Let's keep you home. And I would say the same is true with even our geriatric populations, patients with dementia or that sort of thing. Again, they were really trying to care for folks inside their locations. But then we started to see really sick patients come in when that didn't work or when they ran out of their medications or when their day programs were closed and they didn't have anyone kind of to lay eyes on them on a regular basis in terms of provider level of care, then folks started to come into the hospital and they were pretty sick. You know, we were able to care for them. We were able to get a lot of people back to their baselines. But what we also found was that really things started to improve as programs started to open back up, as they had places to go during the day and that sort of thing. But the other really good thing that came out of this, in my opinion, we're able to reach more people by providing virtual care. What I'll highlight is for a population that I treat, which is postpartum depression, That made all the difference in the world for women that were trying to receive care, that may be nursing and trying to time visits to a doctor around that or around when baby's sleeping or learning how to, you know, actually put up a stroller for the first time or get to the doctor's office on time. I mean, there's all these things that now I'm able to virtually actually meet them literally where they are. Even at Johns Hopkins in our community clinics, we found that no-show rates actually went down. So if I take it away from the moms and put it in someone who has to navigate public transportation or has to come when they can get off of, yeah, a babysitter or they don't have leave from work and they don't have time to get there and get back to work. What we found is that virtually we actually, our field especially, is really able to pull people into treatment a lot more quickly. It's just so important to have just connection during that time and to be able to be connected to my healthcare provider, my you, 
just calms people down it that much faster. Very yeah. big difference. Now, the CDC actually did a pulse survey, which the way I describe these are they send surveys to households to just really check the pulse of things that are going on in the U.S. Where is everybody? How's everybody doing? So they would send this in 2019. And of course, as expected, they got rates back of some people that were experiencing depression, some people that were experiencing anxiety, and but nothing outside of what was considered normal for the population. They repeated that a year later, 2020, during what I will now call the peak of the pandemic. And what they found is that depression and anxiety rates had increased fourfold during that time. Wow! wow. And so, wow. you know, what we would tell people is let's acknowledge this. Let's talk about it. Let's be open and honest because you are not alone. A lot of people are experiencing this and it was across all ages. You know, we had teenagers that were missing prom and, you know, not able to see their friends. We had college students that didn't even get to move out of the house or even sometimes worse, had to move back home (laughs) of independence. We had parents that now had college students back in the house (laughs) during the pandemic. Elderly people who couldn't see their families too. We thought we were doing the right thing by saying, okay, you know, to to our our geriatric elderly populations, we said, okay, you stay there. You'll be safe there. We're going to stay away from you because we don't want to give you COVID. So you stay there and we're doing this for you. But then they didn't have access to grandkids. They didn't have access to friends. They didn't have access to even things that would exercise the mind. You know, in hindsight, the loneliness really took a toll on a lot of people. Do you do or have you done much research in the mental health of our children, of us, of adults, as it relates to our earth? There's two things. There's an evolving line of research that focuses not only on our earth or our surroundings, or our environment, but even what they call the, the kind of the mind gut or brain gut yes. interface. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when we look at that, we can look at, for example, inflammation. There's a whole line of study that goes on with the role of inflammation and depression and what can our bodies tell us about what might be going on in our minds and can we target inflammation, for example, as one of those causes. But similarly, there's a new diagnosis for anxiety that we have seen in young people that are so worried about the earth and so worried about what is happening to our planet that the need for treatments to evolve, the need for the therapy to evolve to, again, like we talked about, provide this culturally sensitive care for what is affecting people right now. And that is certainly different than what those things were, even when most of us went through training. So there's this evolving line of discussion about that. The fresh air matters. And the exercise, right? We know. And exercise. Yeah. yeah. Exercise and diet, all of that really does influence our mental health. We have another doctor here at Sibley who is actually completing additional training in where's this interface? How can we talk about not only environment, but diet? And how is that affecting what we're doing to ourselves? And if we change these things, can we decrease, especially in children? And a lot of times those are interventions that they use for children. What are they eating? How much sugar they have? What, you know, what is in their diet? Back to our discussion about it's a wide open field. There's still so much we have to learn. It's taken such a long time to come around to all that, you know, Trisha and I are what we were feeding our children 
we wouldn't even consider it today. So I'm so happy that that's coming around. I'm not laughing, but we were in a conference, Dora and I were in a conference. I think both of us had this moment. And I think one of us said, I think it was you, Dora, that said it. Like, oh my gosh, I think we were poisoning our children. (laughs) And there was like this moment of like, whoa. But fortunately, they're working through that with their psychiatrists and their therapists. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And we are working it through us, you know, but anyway. We have um, the guilt is- over that. Exactly. But what else is new in the field of mood disorders? You did work at the National Institute of Mental Health. You were there. Is there anything else that comes up that's new? There's a few new or what we call novel therapeutics or new treatments that have been FDA approved. I'd say, you know, taking the break that may have happened during the pandemic, I'd say that the two new recent ones that are exciting for a lot of people are S-ketamine. So a lot of people have heard of ketamine treatments. Some people will get ketamine infusions. There's other preparations. In this case, the FDA approved version is the intranasal administration of S-ketamine. And to kind of the discussion we had earlier, what we find is that for people that have treatment-resistant depression, if we assign it that term, that this is a possibility for them. So we've tried antidepressants that either didn't work or caused too many side effects, then this is a route that many people will go and we see benefit in that subgroup. So it's not where we want people to start in terms of treatments, the same as new emerging take on treatments with psilocybin that there are ongoing studies at Hopkins regarding. Again, not where we want people to start, but if they're not responding to the tools that we most frequently use, then we do start to look at the esketamine. We start to look at for postpartum depression, brexanolone, which is an infusion that must be administered in the hospital, but it has shown promise in treating postpartum depression. Between the esketamine, the brexanolone, the new studies that are going on with psilocybin, there is progress in the field. It's not going to be the same mainstream treatments that might get you better. But what I always tell people is I've got ideas. I have ideas. I have a path that we're navigating. I cannot tell you when you will get better, but you will get better. And that's the truth. I don't know how long it will take, but I very rarely tap out of ideas before people get better. That's what I want, you know, people to take home, which is that if you go the medication route or if you're feeling depressed, you know, we didn't talk about suicide. And a lot of people say, well, you can't talk about suicide because then you talk, you know, you put it in people's minds. But what we've seen is that that's not what happens. When we talk about suicide and when we ask as mental health professionals about suicide, we actually normalize that conversation also. And we really want to encourage people to seek help if that's how they're feeling, because that is a symptom of depression. And like we just talked about, it gets better. So if you're feeling that desperate, we want you to know you come into the emergency room here at Sibley. We treat this on a regular basis. We have ways to keep people safe until they're feeling better. So we really do encourage people to kind of reach out. And back to the point that we were talking about, that too is a novel treatment or new treatments that they're looking at, which is, are there treatments, for example, back to the ketamine piece, there are studies going on now to say, if we do something like this, if we do a treatment like this, can we at least table the suicidal thoughts long enough to get them better? So this is where the new treatments and the very severe illness in terms of suicidal thoughts come together. And there's still ongoing research. Even my colleagues that remained at the NIH are still looking at treatments for real time to treat suicidal thoughts that come. 
I really appreciate you bringing up that suicide because as you said, it's interesting, it's on our minds, but for some reason we don't say it. I think you're so right to bring it up. It normalizes it and there's help for us and for those that have those kinds of thoughts. So I think that's really important. Dr. Richards, your work is so important on so many levels and the hope you provide for people is just wonderful. And we could talk to you for hours, but this was fun. Yes. Um, but maybe we can do this again. Do a second and one. That would be you. great. Yes. <laughs> and thank you for joining us on Health Gig. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well.